With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the legendary Law and Order Stories of the Wild Wild West. Today we look at one of the most legendary of all gunfighters, American gambler and dentist, John Henry Doc Holliday. If you want to support our podcast, make sure to share and subscribe. Of course, a lot of us remember him as a close friend and associate of the lawman Wyatt Earp. And Holliday is best known for his role in the events leading up to and following the gunfight at the OK Corral. He developed a reputation as having killed more than a dozen men in various altercations, but modern researchers have concluded that, contrary to popular myth-making, Holliday probably killed only one to three, and we see this as a common tactic, whether for outlaws or for law enforcement, to give themselves a reputation to hopefully reduce future conflicts and gunfights, right? That was their tactic. Holiday's colorful life and character have been depicted in many books and portrayed by well-known actors in several movies and television series. So we're going to take a quick look at Doc Holiday today and see what we can find, because he does have a very fascinating life. Holiday was born in Griffin, Georgia to Henry Holiday and Alice Jane. He was of English and Scottish ancestry. His father served in the Mexican-American War and the American Civil War. He was a Confederate. When the Mexican-American War ended, Henry brought home an adopted son named Francisco. Holiday was baptized at the First Presbyterian Church of Griffin in 1852. His family moved to Valdosta, Georgia, where his mother died of tuberculosis. Now, tuberculosis, you might want to remember this one a little wrong, because I think you'll see why. She died in 1866. The same disease that killed his adopted brother as well. Three months after his wife's death, his father remarried a woman by the name of Rachel Martin. Holiday attended the Valdosta Institute where he received a classical education in rhetoric, grammar, mathematics, history, and language, principally Latin, but some French and ancient Greek. Now, if you move watch the movie Tombstone, you remember him speaking Latin to Johnny Ringo. So that was pretty close to reality. In fact, a lot of Doc Holliday's portrayal in that movie was pretty close to reality. Of course, there was some made-up Hollywoodized versions of it, and we'll get to that a little later. In 1870, 19-year-old Holliday left home for Philadelphia. On March 1st, 1872, at age 20, remember his mom died at uh, six years before, so she died when he was 14. Now, psychologically, that's the age range between 14 and 18 i'm sure all of you know already is where we try to find out who we are our identity adolescence is a very complicated portion of our life not only for identity but also neuroscientifically what i mean by that neurobiologically 
our prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed. That's the area where we make decisions. That's the area where we inhibit certain bad behaviors. Impulse control is there. Planning, anticipating consequences, all that is operating in that prefrontal cortex. And that's why crime tends to be much higher among that age group, 15 to 25. Now, taking that into consideration, we'll continue with our story. At age 20, he received his doctorate of dental surgery degree from the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery now part of the University of Pennsylvania School of Dental Medicine, which is interesting because they never really discussed that in the movie Tombstone. Maybe they didn't have to. Holiday graduated five months before his 21st birthday. So the school held his degree until he turned 21, the minimum age required to practice dentistry. Go figure. 140 years ago. He began his dental practice in St. Louis, Missouri, so he could work as an assistant for his classmate, A. Jameson Fuke. Less than four months later, at the end of July, he relocated to Atlanta where he joined a dental practice. He lived with his uncle and his family so he could begin to build up the dental practice. A few weeks before Holiday's birthday, Dennis Arthur C. Ford advertised in the papers that Holiday would substitute for him while Ford was attending dental meetings. There are some reports in 1873 that Holiday was involved in a shooting. However, those reports have been disputed and nobody really knows for sure if he was. Shortly after beginning his dental practice though, Holiday was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Same thing as his mother was passed away from and his adopted brother as well. And just to give you an idea, tuberculosis is an infectious disease usually caused by some kind of bacteria and it affects the lungs. So if you remember in Tombstone the movie, if you watched it, you remember he was having big issues towards the end. He was given only a few months to live, but was told that a drier and warmer climate might slow the deterioration of the health. After Dr. Ford's return in September, the other dentist, Holiday, left for Dallas, the last big city before the uncivilized western frontier. When he arrived in Dallas, Holiday partnered with a friend of his father's, Dr. John Seagar. They won awards for their dental work at the annual fair, believe it or not. His tuberculosis, though, got worse and caused coughing spells at inopportune times, and his dental practice slowly declined. Meanwhile, Holiday found some skill at gambling, and he soon relied on it as his principal income source. In May of 1874, you can see how fast his life is moving here. Holiday and 12 others were indicted in Dallas for illegal gambling. He's only at the age now of about 22, 23 years of age. He was arrested in Dallas in January 1875 after trading gunfire with a salon saloon keeper, Charles Austin, but no one was injured, and he was found not guilty. He moved his offices to Denison, Texas, after being fined for gambling in, in Dallas. He soon left the state. Holiday headed to Denver following the stage routes and gambling at towns and army outposts along the way. During the summer of 1875, he settled in Denver under the alias Tom Mackey and found work as a faro dealer for John Babb's Theater. He got in an argument with Bud Ryan, a well-known and tough gambler. They drew knives and fought, and Holiday left Ryan seriously wounded. You might remember this scene in the movie Tombstone. I think they kind of alluded to this incident. Holiday left when he learned about, being, about gold being discovered in Wyoming. He arrived there in 1876 in Cheyenne. He found work as a dealer for Babb's partner, Thomas Miller, who owned the Bella Union Saloon in the fall of 1876. Now at this point we have him at about what? Um, 
24, 25 years of age. In 1877, Holiday returned to Cheyenne and then Denver and eventually to Kansas where he visited his aunt. So you can see he's starting to move a lot. When he left Kansas, he went to Breckenridge, Texas, where he gambled. He had a disagreement with gambler Kevin Henry Kahn, and Holiday beat him repeatedly with his walking stick. Both men were arrested and fined, but Kahn was not finished. Later that same day, he shot and seriously wounded the unarmed Holiday. Now, the Dallas Weekly incorrectly reported that Holiday had been killed. His cousin George Henry Holiday moved west to help him recover. Once healed, Holiday relocated to Fort Griffin, Texas. And this, while dealing cards at John Shancy Saloon, is where he met Mary Catherine Big Nose Kate Horany, a dance hall, dance hall woman and occasional prostitute. Her nose was a prominent feature, according to some. She was tough, stubborn, and fearless. She was educated, but chose to work as a prostitute because she liked her independence. She's the only woman with whom Holiday is known to have had a relationship. Now we head over to 1877. Outlaws led by Dirty Dave Rudabaugh robbed the Santa Fe Railroad construction camp in Kansas. Rudabaugh fled south into Texas. And this, folks, is where we introduce our other story protagonist, Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp was given a temporary commission as Deputy U.S. Marshal and he left Dodge City following Rudabaugh to Fort Griffin, a frontier town of the Clear Fork of the Brazos River. Earp went to the Beehive Saloon, the largest in town and owned by John Shancy, whom Earp had met in Wyoming when he was 21. Shancy told Earp that Rudabaugh had passed through town earlier in the week, but he did not know where he was headed. Shancy suggested Earp ask gambler Doc Holliday, who played cards with Rudabaugh. Holliday told Earp that he thought Rudabaugh was headed back to Kansas. Earp sent a telegram to Ford County Sheriff Bat Masterson that Rudabaugh may be heading that way. After about a month in Fort Griffin, Earp returned to Fort Clark, and in early 1878, he went to Dodge City, where he became the assistant city marshal. Before we go back, before we continue on, that might have been the first time Wyatt Earp ever met Doc Holliday. During the summer of 1878, Holliday and Kate also arrived in Dodge City, where they stayed at Deacon Cox's boarding house as Dr. and Mrs. John Holliday. Holiday sought to practice dentistry again and ran an advertisement in the local paper. According to accounts of the following event by Glenn Boyer and married Wyatt Earp, Earp had run two cowboys, Toby Driscoll and Ed Morrison, out of Wichita earlier in 1878. During the summer, the two cowboys, accompanied by a two dozen men, rode into Dodge and shot up the town while galloping down Front Street. Kind of reminds you of the cowboys from the movie. They entered the Long Branch Saloon vandalized the room and harassed the customers. Hearing the commotion, Earp burst the, through the front door and before he could react, a large number of cowboys were pointing their guns at him. By the way, Long Branch Saloon kind of reminds me of the movie or the show Gunsmoke. Earp busted through the front door and before he could react, a large number of cowboys were pointing their guns at him. In another version, there were only three to five. In both stories, though, Holiday was playing cards in the back of the room, and upon seeing the commotion, drew his weapon and put his pistol at Morrison's head, forcing him and his men to disarm. The first time that we see Holiday and Wyatt Earp join forces, and actually, he rescued, he rescued Wyatt Earp from a very bad situation. No account of any such confrontation, though, was reported by any of the Dodge City newspapers at the time. Whatever actually did happen, Wyatt Earp credited Holiday with saving his life that day. 
and the two did become friends. Later on, Holiday had other confrontations. He was still practicing dentistry in Dodge City, and in 1878, he promised money back for less than complete customer satisfaction. However, this was the last known time that he worked as a dentist, and this is where he gained the nickname Doc Holiday. Holiday reportedly engaged in a gunfight with a bartender named Charles White. Miguel Otero, who would later become governor of New Mexico, said he was present when Holiday walked into the saloon with a cock revolver in his hand, challenged White to settle an outstanding argument. White was serving customers at the time and took cover behind a bar and started shooting at Holiday with a revolver. During the fight, Holiday shot White in the scalp, but there was no contemporaneous newspaper reports of that incident either. Bat Masterson reportedly said that Holiday was in Jacksboro, Texas and got into a gunfight with an unnamed soldier whom Holiday shot and killed. Historian Gary Roberts found a record for a private Robert Smith who had been shot and killed by an unknown assailant. But Holiday was never linked to that. you got to remember, news reportings back then weren't that accurate. Not that they're that accurate today. He later moved to New Mexico, then head over to Dodge again, joined a team. Over in Dodge, though, something happened. In 1979, Wyatt Earp resigned as assistant manager, accompanied by his common-law wife, common-law wife, Maddie Blaylock, remember her from the movie, his brother Jim, and they left for Arizona Territory, and Kate returned to Vegas where they met again at Holiday, met again with the Earps. In Dodge City, Holiday joined a team being formed by U.S. Deputy Marshal Bat Masterson, which were vying to be the first to claim a right-of-way across the Royal George. One of the few natural routes through the Rockies that crossed the Continental Divide. Both were striving to be the first to provide rail access to the boomtown of Leadville, Colorado. Royal George was a bottleneck along the Arkansas. Doc remained there for about oh, two and a half months. The federal intervention prompted the so-called Treaty of Boston to end the fighting to see who can get that land and who can develop that railroad to pass there. The Santa Fe Railroad built tracks to Vegas, New Mexico, but bypassed the city by about a mile. Eventually, we see Doc again getting into more trouble as he was accused of a lot of things, accusing a stagecoach robbery. He was particularly nasty and got into a drunken argument. Holiday kicked out Kate at this time, and then County Sheriff John Behan, if you remember him, and Milt Joyce, both members of the 10% ring saw an opportunity and exploited the situation. They plied Kate with more booze and suggested to her a way to get even with Holiday. She signed an affidavit implicating Holiday in an attempted robbery and murder of passengers aboard a Kinnear and Company stagecoach on March 15, 1881. But you never heard that story. Bob Paul, who had run for Pima County Sheriff, was contesting the election he lost due to ballot stuffing was working as the Wells Fargo shotgun manager. He had taken the reins in driver's seat because the usual driver, a well-known popular man named Eli Bud Philpot, was ill. Paul was riding in Philpot's place a shotgun when three cowboys stopped the stage between Tombstone and Benson. Paul fired a shotgun and emptied his revolver at the robbers, wounding a cowboy, later identified as Bill Leonard in the groin. Philpot and passenger riding in the feared in the rear dicky seat were both shot and killed. Holiday was a good friend of Leonard, a former watchmaker from New York. Based on the affidavit sworn by Kate, Judge Spicer issued an arrest warrant for Holiday. Rumors flew that Holiday had taken part in the shooting and murders. 
Later that day, drunk, Holiday returned to Joyce's saloon. He insulted Joyce and demanded his firearm back. That's Milt. Milt refused and threw him out, but Holiday came back carrying a revolver and started firing. Joyce pulled out a pistol and Holiday shot the revolver out of Joyce's hand, putting a bullet through his palm. When Joyce's bartender Parker tried to grab his gun, Holiday wounded him in the toe. Milt picked up his pistol and pistol whipped Holiday, knocking him out. He shot and wounded both men and was convicted of assault. You might be starting to see a lot of similarities between this and the movie Tombstone now. They just grabbed and chose several parts of the movie. But we do see that Holiday did go to Tombstone and he joined Wyatt Earp and his wife Maddie as well as his brother Jim over in Tombstone and his wife and his stepdaughter and they left and they had gone there to settle up and start a new life. And yes, he even went to Virgil Earp was also there too with his wife Allie. So you can see a lot of this in the movie was pretty accurate. They, they did a couple things of Liberty. If you remember, it was Wyatt Earp who had knocked out that drunken person who drew the weapon at Joyce's saloon, Milt's saloon. It wasn't Doc Holliday. Actually, Holliday was the guy who was whipping the gun around. The Earps found witnesses who could attest to Holliday's location elsewhere at the time of stagecoach murders. And Kate sobered up, revealing that Behan and Joyce had influenced her to sign a document she did not understand. With the cowboy plot revealed, Spicer freed Holliday. The DA threw out the charges, labeled them ridiculous, and Holliday gave Kate some money and put her on a stage out of town. The movie depicted it more that she was a... Uh, endangering his life with drinking, but actually she double-crossed him. In October 26, 1881, is where our stories start wrapping up. Virgil Earp was both a U.S. Deputy Marshal and a Tombstone City Police Chief. He received reports that cowboys with whom they had repeated confrontations were armed in violation of the city ordinance. The cowboys had repeatedly threatened the Earps and Holiday. Fearing trouble, Virgil temporarily deputized Holiday and sought backup from his brothers, Wyatt and Morgan. Virgil retrieved a short coach gun from the Wells Fargo office, and the four men went to find the Cowboys. And that classic scene that we've always seen as they walked down the streets. On Fremont Street, they ran into Cochise County Sheriff Behan, just like the movie shows, who told them or implied that he had disarmed the Cowboys. To avoid alarming citizens and less intention, Virgil gave the coach gun to Holiday so he could conceal it under his long coat. Virgil Earp took Holiday's walking stick. The lawman found the cowboys in a 15 to 20 foot wide lot in Fremont between Fly's boarding house and the Harwood house. Holiday was boarding at Fly's house and he possibly thought they were there to kill him. Different witnesses offered different stories about Holiday's actions. Cowboys witnesses testified that Holiday first pulled out a nickel plated pistol he was known to carry while others reported he first fired a longer bronze-colored gun, possibly the coach. Holiday killed Tom McLarry with a shotgun blast in the side of his chest. Holiday was grazed by a bullet, possibly by Frank McLarry, the brother, who was on Fremont Street at the time. He supposedly challenged Holiday, yelling, I've got you now. Holiday is reported to replied, Blaze away. You're a daisy if you have, just like the movie said. McLarry died of shots to his stomach and behind his ear. Holiday may have also wounded Billy Clanton. 
What analysis of the fight gives the credit to either Holiday or Morgan Earp for firing the fatal shot at McClary on Fremont Street? Holiday may have been on McClary's right and Morgan Earp on his left. McClary was shot in the right side of the head, so Holiday is often given credit for shooting him. However, Wyatt Earp had shot McClary in his torso just a little earlier. So that could have killed him. Either way. A 30-day-long preliminary hearing found the Earps and Holiday had acted within their duties as lawmen, although this did not pacify Ike Clinton. The situation in Tombstone grew worse when Virgil Earp was ambushed and permanently injured in December 1881. Following that, Morgan Earp was ambushed and killed in March of 1882, just like the movie depicted. Several cowboys were identified by witnesses as suspects in the shooting of Virgil and the assassination of Morgan. Additional circumstantial evidence also pointed to their involvement. Wyatt Earp had been appointed Deputy U.S. Marshal after Virgil was maimed. He deputized Holiday, Warren Earp, Sherman McMaster, and Turkey Creek Jack Johnson. After Morgan's murder, Wyatt Earp and his deputies guarded Virgil and Alley on their way to the train for Colton, California, where his father lived to recuperate from a serious shotgun wound. In March 20, 1882, the group spotted an armed Frank Stilwell and reportedly Clyde Clanton hiding among the railroad cars, apparently lying in wait with the intent to kill Virgil. Frank Stilwell's body was found at dawn alongside the railroad tracks, riddled and buckshot with gunshot wounds. Wyatt said later in life that he killed Stilwell with a shotgun. That was the classic scene in the movie Tombstone, where Wyatt Earp says, Tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me. Tombstone... Tucson Justice of Peace Charles Meyer issued arrest warrants for five of the Earp party, including Holiday. On March 21st, they returned briefly to Tombstone, where they were joined by Texas Jack Vermillion and possibly others. They created the Earp Posse. And at this point, according to Theodore Judah, who witnessed events at the Wood Camp, the Earp Posse arrived around 11 a.m. and asked for Spence and Florentino, India, and Charlie Cruz. They later they learned Spence was in jail and that Cruz was cutting wood nearby. They followed the direction Judah indicated and he soon heard a dozen or so shots. When Cruz did not return the next morning, Judah went looking for him and found his body full of bullet holes. Two days later, Earp's posse traveled to Iron Springs, located in the Whetstones Mountains, where they expected to meet Charlie Smith, who was supposed to be bringing $1,000 cash from their supporters in Tombstone. With Wyatt and Holiday in the lead, the six lawmen surmounted a small rise overlooking the springs. They surprised the eight cowboys camping near the springs. Wyatt Earp and Holiday left the only record of the fight. Curly Bill recognized Earp in the lead and immediately grabbed a shotgun and fired at Earp. The other cowboys also drew their weapons and began firing. Earp dismounted, shotgun in hand. Texas Jack's horse was shot and fell on him, pinning his leg and wedging his rifle underneath. Lacking cover, Holiday, Johnson, and McMaster retreated. Earp returned Curly Bill's gunfire with his own shotgun and shot him in the chest, nearly cutting him in half, according to Earp's later account. Curly Bill fell into the water by the edge and lay dead. The Cowboys fired a number of shots at the Earp party, but the only casualty was Vermillion's horse, which was killed. Wyatt's long coat was shot through by bullets on both sides. Another bullet struck him. Struck his boot heel and his saddle horn was hit as well, burning the saddle high and narrowly missing Wyatt. He was finally able to get on his horse and retreat. McMaster was grazed by a bullet that cut through the straps of his field glasses. Holiday and four other members of the posse were still faced with warrants for Stillworld's death. The group elected to leave the Arizona Territory for New Mexico and then on to Colorado. Wyatt and Herp, I mean Wyatt Earp and Holiday 
who had been fast friends, had a serious disagreement and parted ways in Albuquerque. According to a letter written by Governor Miguel Otero, Wyatt and Holiday were eating at Fat Charlie's when Holiday said something about Earp becoming a damn Jew boy, and Earp became angry and left. Earp was staying with a prominent businessman, Henry Jaffa, who was also president of the Albuquerque's Board of Trade. In 1882, Holiday was arrested in Denver on the, on the, the Tucson warrant for murdering Frank Stilwell. Earp learned of the charges. He feared his friend Holiday would not receive a fair trial in Arizona, so Earp asked his friend Masterson, then the chief of police of Trinidad, Colorado, to help get Holiday released. Masterson drew up bunco charges against Holiday. Holiday's extradition hearing was set for May 30th. Late in the evening of May 29th, Masterson sought help getting an appointment with Colorado governor. He contacted E.D. Cohen, capital reporter for the Denver Tribune, who held political sway. Cohen later wrote, he submitted proof of the criminal design upon Holiday's life. Late as the hour was, I called on Pitkin. His legal reasoning was that the extradition papers for Holiday contained faulty legal language and there was already a Colorado warrant out for Holiday. So they refused to honor Arizona's extradition request. Masterson took Holiday to Pueblo, where he was released on bond two weeks after his arrest. So with the help of a reporter, the governor, and Bat Masterson, they were able to say that the extradition request papers from Arizona were bunk. And that's how Holiday got out of that mess. Holiday and Wyatt met again in June 1882 in Gunnerson after Wyatt helped to keep his friend from being convicted. Holiday was able to see his old friend one last time in the winter of 1886, where they met in the lobby of the Windsor Hotel. Sadie Marcus described the skeletal holiday as having a continuous cough and standing on unsteady legs. But I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about what happened on July 14, 1882. Holiday's longtime enemy, Johnny Ringo, if you remember him from the movie, was found dead in a low fork of a large tree in West Turkey Creek. He had a bullet hole in his right temple, and a revolver was found hanging from a finger. A coroner's inquest officially ruled his death a suicide, but according to the book, I Married Wyatt Earp. Earp and Holiday traveled to Arizona with some friends in early July and found Ringo in the valley and killed him. Boyer refused to produce his source manuscripts. This is the author of the book, I Married Earp. And reporters wrote that his explanations were conflicting and not incredible and not credible. New York Times contributor Alex Barrow, Alan Barra wrote that the book is now recognized by Earp researchers as a hoax. A variant of the story, though, popularized in the movie, of course, Tombstone holds that Holiday stepped in for Earp in response to a gunfight challenge with Ringo. Evidence is unclear as to Holiday's exact whereabouts on the day of Ringo's death. Records of the District Court of Pueblo County, Colorado, indicate that Holiday and his attorney appearance in court in Preblo, and again on July 14th to answer charges of larceny, but a writ of capius was issued for him on the 11th, suggesting that he may not have been in court that day. Again, things aren't always well kept 150 years ago in their files, so it's kind of difficult, but there is a newspaper called the Pueblo Daily reported that Holiday was seen in Colorado, more than 500 miles away from Ringo's body was found on July 7th, and then in Leadville on July 18th. Holiday biographer Karen Holiday Tanner noted that there was still an outstanding murder warrant in Arizona for Holiday's arrest, making it unlikely that he would choose to re-enter Arizona at that time. So that could be the only part of the movie that might be a little far-fetched, but it made for a fun scene. In 1887, prematurely gray and badly ailing, 
Holiday made his way to the Hotel Glenwood near the Hot Springs in Colorado. He hoped to take advantage of the reputed curative power of the waters, but the sulfurous fumes from the spring might have done his lungs more harm than good. Holiday, Holiday died at 10 a.m. on November 8, 1887. He was 36 years of age. Wyatt Earp did not learn of Holiday's death until two months. Kate later said that she attended to him in his final days and one contemporary source appears to back her claim. So that's our long-winded story of Doc Holliday. Fascinating gunman. And the movie Tombstone seems to do a pretty good job at depicting him. Some parts are not accurate, but many of them are. A dentist, a gentleman, a gambler, a gunfighter, just like all of us, a complex human being. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.